Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. The ambassador holds degrees from the Moscow Engineering Physics Institute, which he received in 1973, and the USSR Academy of Foreign Trade, where he earned that degree in 1977. I've already mentioned that the ambassador has had a, a long history in the United States, but just to be specific, he arrived in 1981, second secretary at the permanent mission of the Soviet Union to the United Nations in New York, and then 1985 went on to become first secretary and served in a variety of capacities in Washington, D.C., and has held various positions in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Just prior to coming to the United States, the ambassador was the ambassador of the Russian Federation to the Kingdom of Belgium, as well as Russia's uh, first uh, representative to NATO in Brussels. Brussels. Uh, and, and then, excuse me, then later served as Russia's uh, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs before coming here. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, give a great Texas welcome to Ambassador Kislak. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Paul, for generous presentation. It's true, I've spent a lot of time in the United States. It's my, I think, about 14 year. And uh, when I came uh, first time to serve in the United States, it was in 81, it was the peak of the Cold War. And I left in 89, where we had so many hopes after the visit by Mr. Gorbachev, his historical visit of Mr. Gorbachev to the United States. And currently, it's also very interesting times that we live through. And you know, I have developed <coughs> my own yardstick, how one can measure the quality uh, of the Russian-American relations. And I already know that the more invitations to speak I get, the worse relations are. <laughs> and the kind of attendance here is certainly not proof of it. And thank you for inviting me. You know, it's not easy to speak about Russian-American relations now because uh, it's a story of so many unused opportunities and uh, unfriendly friends, uh, steps that work against interests of both countries, not only uh, one of them. Uh, yeah. And uh, the 23 years after the end of the Cold War, we're still in a difficult situation in bilateral relations. We all hoped for much better, especially by the time we are now. 23 years after the Cold War, we still are haunted by the uh, Cold War stereotypes, perceptions of each other that sometimes different from the realities. And uh, the quality of bilateral relations proper and the tissue of these relations is still very minuscule. I would give you a couple of examples. For example, the trade between our two countries, usually 
it's one of the measurement of the quality of the relations because it's not only dollars that are made through trade. It's bringing people together, working on projects that brings profits to both sides. So uh, last year it was almost uh, a record high uh, trade. It was only 38.1 uh, billion dollars. Sounds almost impressive. But just think of it. It doesn't place the United States anywhere high on the list of most important partners for Russia because, for example, EU, we enjoy trade with the EU that is 12 times greater than with the United States. For the United States, Russia isn't an important trading partner either. It's, uh, with that numbers, it's less than 1% of the foreign trade that the United States enjoy annually. Uh, and I remember last year, uh, your foreign trade dropped by 2%. Did anybody notice it? And trade with us is only one. And it's deplorable because the opportunities are there. And I would say that the structures of economy are such that gives enormous field for mutual investment and mutual trade. Some of this is happening. And Russian companies started investing in the United States with various degree of success. Some of them made it very well, one of the companies that we have here helps you with the shell gas, and they have become, as a result of this, uh, running operations both in United States and Russia, number one in the industry in the world. The others were working in steel industries and several others, and uh, more or less they, they feel very comfortable here, like American companies which do uh, operate in Russia. But look at the other sides of our relations. And uh, just try to imagine, or rather remember, how the relations are discussed here. The major part of the discussions about what Russia is and what Russia is not for the United States goes through discussion of the crises throughout the world where we agree or where we disagree. Syria, Iran, Iraq, uh, before. Uh, currently, it's Ukraine. But sometimes I ask myself, what about Russian-American relations proper? We have minuscule trade. Culture exchanges are very limited, unfortunately. Uh, I have always trying to help to rebuild uh, contacts between the legislatures of this country. They do not talk to each other. Uh, the Senate do not talk to they simply mind their own business and uh, there is no ongoing dialogue that certainly would help, would have helped, I would say, to bring more understanding of each other and more confidence in what the other side does. That also reinforces sometimes the disagreements to the extent of a, if not a crisis, but a significant irritants in our relations. And uh, uh, 23 years after the end of the Cold War, we are now in another challenging period, most probably one of the worst uh, after the Cold War in our bilateral relations, and I would admit unnecessarily so. And uh, the prospects to rebuild it are certainly there, and we are going to work to, uh, 
in order to achieve it. But we certainly have to draw uh, another set of lessons from lessons learned from what we are. And here I will dwell a little bit on Ukraine, and I fully expect that there will be questions, so I will leave the rest of it for the questions. Uh, when I read, and I certainly do it each and every day, the uh, reporting here in the States about uh, Ukraine and Russian-American relations sometimes is portrayed as a kind of Russian-American feud. It's not. Sometimes it's portrayed as a uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It's not. The crisis in Ukraine came as an internal problem as a result of unconstitutional overthrow of the government and inability of newly established leadership in the country to talk to all of the people in a way that would allay their concern. That is the problem. And what we are trying to uh, do, we are trying to help a process that would bring peace and dialogue between Ukrainians and Ukrainians. That is the most important thing. Sometimes we are being portrayed as somebody who is trying to uh, restore the Soviet Union to capture lands where Russian speakers live. It's simply not true. We have enough of land. We, have, uh, we can use more people to live there. Uh, we certainly want to live in a normal, uh, predictable environment. And when it comes to Ukraine, we want them to live in a normal, in a stable, and uh, a country, a prosperous country that is at peace and in friendship with us. I would like to underline one thing. Ukraine is not just another country for us. Ukraine uh, is part of the world where which we shared, all of us. Of course, it's absolutely independent, a country that has all the sovereign rights to take decisions as what's best for them. But also, what is making it more uh, important for many Russians is that uh, we have not only very intertwined economies, because uh, from the times of the Soviet Union, uh, the industries worked in such a way that many Russian industries rely on uh, components coming from Ukraine, and the reverse is also true. But what is even more important, uh, the families, uh, the friends, uh, many families are living both in Russia and Ukraine, because prior nobody cared who you are, Ukrainian or Russia. And uh, people were moving throughout uh, the Russian or Soviet Union. And you would find a lot of families uh, in Russia who uh, have relatives all came from Ukraine and vice versa. Moreover, a lot of things that are common today in culture, historic developments, are also the same. Christianity came to Russia through Kyiv. And that brings us much even closer historically, emotionally, uh, in terms of the uh, connections that we enjoy with Ukrainians. And that makes many Russians, normal people in the street, those who are not participating in decision-making or policy uh, shaping, 
I feel very, very uh, concerned about what is happening in a, a neighboring and uh, uh, so close country to us. Having said so, it doesn't mean that we claim any spe specific rights to tell the Ukrainians what is the best of them. We can certainly share our view, and we certainly do. But we have concern about the fate of the people who consider themselves to be Russians living in Ukraine. And there were a number of instances where they felt, they felt that their interest and their future might be uh, threatened. But I'll leave it there, and uh, hopefully I'll get answer, uh, questions. And I will uh, return to the uh, rest of the world, and uh, I would underline one important thing. The history shows that the uh, United States, uh, as a power with the global uh, reach, Russia as a country that has a lot of interest in many regions as well, but not competing on the same uh, level uh, geostrategically because we are not interested in that. But as a result of historical developments, as a result of our respective ability to influence, when it comes to international crises, when we work together, things more or less get moving. It's not yet guaranteed, but nevertheless it does. I'll give you a couple of examples, recent examples, like the question of chemical weapons in Syria. If it wasn't for Russian-American relations, a Russian-American partnership on this issue, difficult partnership, but still partnership, most probably we would have had much more difficult situation with the weapons, especially in the region, in the country that is in ongoing conflict. But by today, I think uh, that, I do not know the exact figure for the today, but most probably 80 to 90% of uh, the chemical weapons have already been removed from Syria, and this process is continuing. It's not without problem, but what is important, we work together and we make things happen. Look at the negotiations uh, on the Iranian nuclear program. It's also very, very difficult issue. I spent personally five years as a part of negotiating process representing Russia in it. I, I fully understand how a, a refining policy needs to be developed in order to bring all sides together. Initially, the United States even was sitting with us at the negotiating table. Currently, U.S. there, and I would say that sometimes we have disagreements, but by and large, when we agree, and we agree with the Europeans, we develop a position that provides good groundwork for advancing negotiations. And they are advancing. However, everybody would have liked to see much bigger or much speedier process that has been the case so far. But they're moving in the right direction. At the same time, when we have different positions where we have um, in regions where both of us can bring an influence, things uh, are developing in uh, much less productive fashion. So what I'm suggesting is that working together on international crises serves not only our, serves your interest. 
and it has been the case even in prior to uh, uh, the decomposition of the Soviet Union. We have always worked together on non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, something that is of utmost importance to you, and it's even of great importance to us because we are living closer to the regions closer to the regions that might uh, become a source of uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons. And having worked in this particular area almost all my professional life, I would say that there are very few other areas where we enjoy that kind of, I wouldn't hesitate to use it even today, partnership with American specialists, as it is the case with non-proliferation. Having said so, I would also like to underline one thing. We have differences. We haven't grown uh, to be mature enough in our bilateral relations to fully uh, use the uh, potential uh, for working together on issues. I certainly have a very particular view as to who is to blame, but uh, what is important is a little bit different. Uh, once I draw a list of things uh, that unite us, objectively, because the challenges in the post-Cold War uh, that you face and we face, very similar. It's proliferation of nuclear weapons, inter-ethnic intolerance, regional crises, uh, inter-religious uh, hatred, and uh, the list continues, including the uh, uh, environmental crisis, economic crisis only several years ago. And this list, if you compare it with the list of things which, in which we do not see eye to eye, as far as I'm concerned, not only longer, in the long term, it's much more important than anything else. Does it suggest that we cannot uh, avoid uh, uh, difficulties, we certainly will have differences because Russia is a big country. With due respect to Americans or other friends of ours, we have our own view on a number of issues. Sometimes we are willing to protect our views, our interests. Doesn't mean uh, that they are mutually uh, incompatible with uh, the United States, but we want to be treated with respect our views to be heard, and if we work together, it needs to be based on future form of full respect. Sometimes we, when I say we, you and us, succeed in it, sometimes less so. Currently, we live in a period that was not only Ukraine, it started even uh, before that. Uh, that certainly isn't very encouraging. If you ask me, is it return to the Cold War? And I remember I joked with my wife and said, no, 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 no. I do not feel returning to my younger years. We are looking into the future. I want calm uh, pension afterwards. And <clears throat> I mean it. Uh, because whatever difficulties we live through now, whatever difficult period is going to follow because of animosities accumulated, there is still significant positive underpinning that is there that makes us work together on the most important things. And I think it will prevail in the future. But 
it certainly will take a lot of time, ingenuity, and work. But we are certainly hopeful to in Washington in the future. I will stop here because I understand that the most important things will follow in Q&A. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. I probably shouldn't have to do this, but I will. Questions start with what, where, when, why. Don't need a whole lot of commentary today because we want to get to as many questions as possible. And some people have asked, um, were we going to present, uh, on, just on the Ukrainian side, a, a di different position? Uh, we have, uh, several weeks ago, sent a letter to the ambassador of Ukraine inviting him. We have continued to follow up. and. Uh, Quite frankly, we can't even get through the switchboard to find anything, uh, an, an answer. So I will continue. Liz, you'll help me. We'll continue to, to work on that. Your Excellency, let me just ask the first question, if I may. Um, in some of your prior speeches, you've, you've talked about stereotypes. And you're so familiar with this country. Could you identify stereotypes that we as Americans perhaps still hold towards your country and stereotypes that Russians see towards the United States? Stereotypes, um, there are a number of examples that I can bring. I will try to bring uh, fresh ones and the most important one. The most important one is that the United States, uh, and I've spoken to a lot of people in this country, seem to have adopted a view that you won the Cold War. And if you won the Cold War, the rest of the people need to follow the view of the uh, <clears throat> vanquering side. Uh, we see the things differently because we have lived through a difficult period, enormous change in Russia. And just try to imagine, 23 years ago, Russia and the Soviet Union was a country where everything was owned by the state. We lived under the pre-programmed life that was coordinated, programmed, and planned by central government. There were minuses, significant minuses, because it brought the economic situation to almost a crisis, because it was less than efficient with all the richness that Russia enjoys. And we are rich in everything. We are rich almost in all the minerals, uh, we have excellent brains. We are one of the most educated nations in the world in terms of people with a university degree per capita. We are among the first or the first. Uh, and there are a lot of talents in physics, maths, everything. What was missing is a good organization and management of the businesses. And when we lived in the Soviet Union, there was no management in the classical market economy terms. It was planned. Then everything stopped even being planned. And we spent almost three to four years, in my uh, estimate, trying to identify what Russia is going to be, where we are going to move. And mind you, there were a number of people uh, in Russia and the vote each and every year confirmed that it's about 25% of the people who wanted a return to the past. 
Because even in the past, there were a lot of things that were good in Russia, in the Soviet Union, if you will. The social uh, justice, the assured uh, way of uh, uh, social security. It wasn't too uh, satisfying in terms of the quality and quantity of the services you got from the government. But you had a kind of bare minimum that was assured. You shouldn't worry you will get an apartment, you will get pension, you will be uh, uh, getting medical service free, your children will go to university free and will get some uh, loans from the state. And just try to imagine, everything is gone in a very short period of time, and we had to define what we are going to be. We have defined, we start market economy, not without pains, problems, and uh, sometimes big uh, failures. Uh, we even had, for example, a kind of market romantics who were advancing and trying to impose in the country a process of converting social economy to market economy within 500 days. So there was a plan that is still called 500 days for Russia. It was so naive because there were a lot of people who were saying that we still, since we become market economy, the market will settle all the issues by itself. Certainly you understand that's not something that you can find in real life. And bit by bit, we, we have developed a system that is uh, rather modern economy. We enjoy now a GNP that is uh, uh, produced by and large. We're talking about stereotypes. No, 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 I'm re I will return. Because I want to be sure we have time <laughs> yeah, 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 to get these questions. But in order to understand why the stereotypes... I didn't want to ask the only question. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> but I'm trying to, to pre... not to prevent, but preempt. All right. Uh, a I'll give you another minute and then we'll open it up. Yeah, 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 I will. So what I'm suggesting is that the country has changed enormously. Enormously. It's a different world now in Russia. We have a new generation of people who are now uh, coming of age and becoming managers, uh, even ministers. One of our ministers is 29 years old. And he is very successful uh, personally in uh, communications and very successful minister. It's a new generation, it's a new country. And when all of this happened, we thought that Americans will become natural friends for us. It didn't materialize. Uh, at the same time, when I see how Americans assess Russia, um, mostly uh, what I see is, uh, I'm not talking about the press because the press is known not to publish anything positive on Russia because as one of them told me, uh, good news about Russia doesn't sell. Another, uh, another gentleman though told me, Sergey, uh, uh, good news doesn't sell full stop. Uh, but what I'm uh, suggesting is that the view of Russia sometimes here, maybe in majority of uh, instances, doesn't reflect the change that occurred. People are still attributing to us the uh, nostalgia for the Soviet Union at times, nostalgia uh, for uh, control of other countries, which uh, is absolutely uh, without any ground. 
Uh, recently, what we hear is that Russia is pre-planning actions to return to the Soviet Union to expand its empire, quote unquote. There is no empire, though. And uh, that certainly uh, causes a lot, a lot of misperceptions about what we do and what we do not do. And that's so important to explain what Russia is and at the same time what Russia is not. When it comes to American uh, stereotypes, it's one that I call very important, that many people here still associate Russia uh, with the image of Soviet Union of the past. I'm not suggesting that everything was wrong in the Soviet Union. There were a lot of wrong things done, but there were also pretty good things, especially relations between, between people, between nations. That something that was under enormous strain after the, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. And I will give you one example. Uh, I apologize, you have heard it already, but it's a stereotype, so it's direct answer to your question. Stereotypes uh, about uh, Russia. You, uh, the United States, introduced against the Soviet Union uh, the so-called Jackson-Vanik Amendment. It was a denial to the Soviet Union of the right of normal trading partner with the United States. The reason it was introduced back then was a dissatisfaction of American Congress with the way Russian Jews were permitted to immigrate to Israel. You remember when was it? The elder generation does. Uh, currently, we enjoy absolutely friendly relations with uh, Israel. If I go to Israel, I do not need visa. Israelis come to us without visa. They even returning back with investment, with ideas, because they know the market pretty well. And we have two parties who are Russian speakers, uh, two Russian-speaking parties in Knesset who are enormously friendly to Russia. And the, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs is a Russian speaker. Whenever I meet him, we speak only Russian, and uh, he is so comfortable with his uh, uh, origins. So all the difficulties of the past not only disappeared, because Russia is a different country, we, with the Israelis and the Jews on both sides, don't remember them. We are focusing on excellent relations we enjoy in all the fields. But Jackson Benick was still there. I had spoken to an American congressman uh, as to why, and uh, all of them were to different degree of sincerity suggesting that it's difficult to remove something that is anti-Russian. And when you needed it to be removed because uh, you wanted uh, American business to enjoy uh, better opportunities in Russia with Russian joining WTO. You decided, you, the United States, decided to remove it, but it was replaced by another now anti-Russian law, that is Magnitsky law. So you couldn't afford to remove something uh, of the past without replacing it, something looking into the future. Both were negative. That is a practical example of what I think goes wrong in our... Good, now we'll appreciate that, now we'll open it up. Let's take General Williams first, if you can work your way up here. Thank you, I'm not sure I need the microphone, but uh, Ambassador, glad that you're here. Uh, recently you signed a $400 billion deal with China, and I was just wondering how you see that developing, and then is this a new future alliance, uh, as I know that some of the uh, 
attendees in the meeting were also Iran and uh, the Pakistanis. So I was just wondering if uh, you could address that. Well, I'm asking myself what the Pakistanis and the Iranians had to do with the uh, oil deal with China. They were there for another meeting, but they happened to be there. When it comes to the uh, oil deal, uh, it's not uh, uh, building an alliance through uh, gas supply partnership. We have excellent relations uh, with China. By the way, our economic relations are three times greater than with the United States, and the agreement of both sides is to see to it that by 2020, it will be two times greater. So it will reach $200 billion a year. And there are all the ingredients to make it happen. The reason why we want to have a gas deal with China, very obvious, it's neighbor. We have gas uh, in abundance, uh, especially in the region that is very close to China. And secondly, uh, in 2006, we had a G8 meeting in St. Petersburg. And we as a chair people at that time introduced as a major topic for G8 to be energy security. And all the eight came to the conclusion that the most important thing in order to have stable energy markets is diversification. So our client states uh, or uh, importance of our gas and gas from other regions uh, they were talking in terms of uh, diversifying the sources of the energy. Uh, it's not something that was so important to us, but by the same token, or by the same token, we uh, were insisting that for us, what is important? Diversification of the markets. And currently, especially with the crisis seas, uh, with gas supply, with our Ukrainian friends, we were just uh, reinforced in understanding we need to diversify the markets. And China deal uh, important in itself for Russian and Chinese relations, for economic relations between our two countries, for development of the region, because we are going to invest five, uh, 50 plus billion dollars in infrastructure in the region adjacent to China. Otherwise, we would have avoided this. But now with that kind of uh, deal that will pay off afterwards, it's a very uh, important investment for us to make. It will help to develop a region. So for us, it, it's many things other than just making another extra buck from the trade with our neighbor. And it will continue because currently both sides are discussing another pipeline. So this deal is for one uh, pipeline that is in closer to the east of our borders. Now people are thinking about a new one that might come later, and people are still in discussing uh, stage for this. Then there will be another pipeline. And uh, that's uh, something that will bring more stability to our economy, and we welcome this. It's not an alliance against some anybody. Um, the lady right there with, with the red hair, Right there, yes. In Ukrainian, sure. Thank you for bringing we'll, it. We'll, we'll look for a brief question, please. Okay. Um, uh, 
Your Excellency, Mr. Ambassador, we know that you are here to attract uh, uh, investments from uh, this Dallas community. Uh, the question is, uh, how would you justify the reckless behavior of the uh, president of Russia who refuses to de-escalate the violence uh, at the eastern part of Ukraine by supporting both financially and militarily the terrorists in this region, also by sending highly trained uh, units to this region and also keeping the multitude of heavy armed uh, troops at the, have at the border question. of Ukraine. Now, now, I want to say, because even though these actions um, uh, uh, cause uh, huge harm to the Russian economy, uh, because um, uh, global um, investors, a community of the investors are pulling away from Russia uh, as a risky um, uh, uh, environment for investment due to sanctions by, Russia, uh, by the United States and European Union. Okay, thank you for your question. And thank you for wearing the Ukrainian shirt, so beautiful. And for me it's even more important because I'm Ukrainian ethnically. And uh, my father was born in Ukraine, my mother was born in Ukraine, and I spent half of my childhood in Ukraine. My father marched from Kiev to Germany uh, as an officer fighting Nazism there. And I would say that for me, like for many others in Russia, to watch what is happening in Ukraine, it's not only disappointing, it's painful. It's the first thing. Then the simplest thing. Uh, uh, economic suffering uh, for Russia, uh, it's so overstated, overblown. And I heard your question, and most probably like yourself, I start my morning by reading Ukrainian internet, I'm Ukrainian speaker. And everything you said is something that I read each and every day there. But there are so many distortions, and so many untruths circulated by Kyiv against Russia. And as I said, the problem is not uh, between us and Kyiv. The problem is between Kyiv and the rest of the country. When uh, I will dwell with the economic fallout of the sanctions, of course, sanctions doesn't help, do not help to any country under no circumstances. Whether it's ruining our economy, of course not. Russia is. Uh, I think it's seventh uh, largest economy in the world. We certainly diversify our economic ties and we'll be doing even more. We uh, have enjoyed uh, pretty significant even influx of the financial investment in last year because we are a good market. And recently we had the, the so-called Petersburg uh, business meeting. It's annual event, pretty big one. And the attendance was almost like in this room, from all over the world, including from the United States, because businesses certainly understand that in the long term, Russia is a good partner. It's a market of 150, almost 150 million people. And uh, with us joining in terms of economic union with Kazakhstan and Belarus, it's a market of 170 million people. 
So, uh, of course, nobody likes sanctions, but you need to remember, it's always a kind of double-edged sword. And for those who work with us, it's certainly also disappointing. Uh, moreover, uh, the economic fallout uh, that you referred to came mostly, and not as a result of sanctions, but rather as a result of economic development in the world, including by the actions of the Feds here in the States that make your market more lucrative for dollar investment than other markets. And that's one of the reasons why people say there was uh, outflow uh, of capitals from Russia. However, there are different versions of what is actually occurring because our central bank suggests that during first trimester, $63 billion are considered to be uh, out of the country. What is uh, it's not exactly the case because it's 50 billion out of 63 were converted by Russians from rubles to dollars. So it was internal conversion in order to protect uh, the investment uh, because of the uh, ups and downs in the market. Secondly, we are not sending our troops equipped or unequipped to Ukraine. And what is happening in Ukraine is that the new government started its activities with the steps that were considered to be uh, very unfavorable, if uh, one wants to be very polite and soft, to Russian speakers. One of the first uh, uh, law that was voted, one of the first laws that was voted in the Duma after the coup was a draft law to repeal the previous law that made Russian language, together with some others, a regional language. It certainly sent a very, very wrong signal to those who are Russian uh, living there. It estimated about 12 to 14 million people. There were a number of other states. I'm not talking about the statements of the extreme rights that also included in the government, suggesting that Russians need to be given uh, less than full citizenship status there. So the first signals were very, very unfortunate. Afterwards, they was corrected, not without, uh, I think, convincing power of other countries, including mine, hopefully. But the problem is that uh, when people in the regions uh, that were dissatisfied with what occurred in Kiev in unconstitutional fashion, when they expressed themselves, when they were insisting on greater autonomy, greater uh, uh, rights, including their cultural, linguistic rights, the right to give education to children in the languages they have spoken all their life. Uh, the government uh, preferred to label them terrorists and separatists. And the more this continues, the more uh, divided the country becomes. That's why we have been trying to convince Kiev we have been saying it so many times. They need to stop using armed forces against their own people and to launch inclusive dialogue. And uh, this dialogue is not there. 
And the first round tables are certainly a very good beginning, but it needs to bring all people, not only those who are uh, working with the government in Kyiv. They had elections now, and uh, they have a president-elect, and we are certainly looking forward to see what is going to happen when he uh, comes to power. That is going to happen, I think, within 10 to 15 days. Uh, but so far, what we see happening is just reinforcement of the use of regular army, regular army, against the own people. Let's take a question. Jocelyn, right here on the front row. <clears throat> if you could wait for the microphone. And over on this side. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Ambassador, for being here, and thank you for what you're doing to try to promote the relations between our countries. Uh, Russia annexed Crimea, despite having guaranteed back in 1994, along with the United States and others, that Ukrainian borders would be respected. And despite what you just said about how Russian government has no objection to Ukrainians solving their own issues. In addition, there are many, many, many reports of Russian soldiers in uniform without insignia deploying throughout Crimea prior to the annexation. And there are many reports of Russian paramilitaries throughout. Question. And so my question is, Mr. Ambassador, how can we trust what we hear from the Russian government in light of all of this? Well, uh, Crimea is a very particular issue and it's very important to discuss. Uh, I hope that majority of people know the historical roots of the problem, that Crimea has always been part of Russia before Khrushchev decided uh, to give it within the Soviet Union borders to another republic from Russia to Ukraine. It was a voluntary decision by a person who used to be, prior to that, the first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine. In the time, nobody cared too much whether you were part of Ukraine, Russia, we were all one country. But it's not the reason why uh, things occurred the way they did. When uh, the coup occurred, or, or whatever you call it, revolution, or um, overthrow the government in Kyiv, people in Crimea, and 60% plus, there are Russians, ethnic Russians. They all were insisting that they want more autonomy. They want to be... Uh, more independent. By the way, by the time they had already been uh, under status of autonomous republic within Kiev. And uh, what happened next? Uh, they were labeled uh, separatists. Some right-wing uh, people in Kiev promised them to have Maidan of their own, and there was an attempt made to organize Maidan in the capital of Crimea. I think one person was killed, several were wounded. So that's what was happening. It was a very, very uh, stable period uh, when the things with the treatment of Russians occurred in Kyiv. Uh, statements made and um, uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. By the time we had around 14, 16,000, I do not recollect exact number of uh, uh, our military in Crimea because they were under 
bilateral agreement with Ukraine. It was Navy, it was Marines, there was an airfield Russian, and uh, we certainly read uh, the position, position them, not position, but uh, took measures in order to be sure that these forces are protected, they are safe. Plus, they were a little bit reinforced, and I mean it a little bit. But whatever Russian uh, forces did, it never exceeded the limits of 25,000 that had been allowed for us to have there. Never, even close to this. And secondly, we have never used force, actually. We were present there just to make sure that there was no attempt to impose on instability and what happened in Kyiv isn't going to happen in uh, Crimea. So uh, our forces didn't participate in military, uh, any military clashes there. And uh, there was a self-organized uh, uh, resistance in Crimea that was taking care of the situation. We weren't there in the forefront. Now, what happened next, and I'm coming to the agreement of 94. It's not an agreement, it's a political statement, though. Uh, we saw in Crimea decision by the people to go independent and next to go as part of Russia. And you, you wouldn't contest it. They voted overwhelmingly to become independent and to become part of Russia. Now you will be asking, do they have a right? Yes, it's under the UN Charter. The very first, uh, or one of the first principles of UN Charter, respect for the right for self-determination. There is also a provision for respect for the sovereign borders. But there is no uh, well-cut understanding as how they are mutually uh, regulated. And we had lived this prior to that when you were developing your position, the United States position, on Kosovo. That's something as a legal doctrine that you created even before we thought of it, because we never planned anything for Crimea or anything else. Things were developing so fast, they were thrown on us. So they decided to become independent. They decided to become part of Russia. And because of the very close relations that I alluded to previously, I think 83% of Russian citizens, normal Russian citizens who do not have anything to do in government decisions, they all overwhelmingly supported this as well. That's why the chain of events where they decided it's not us violating the border, it's Crimeans themselves decided to become independent. And having become so, they have decided to join us and we embrace them. So it's not annexation. It's not kind of uh, sometimes uh, considered and presented here as a uh, attempt by Russia to pocket somebody else's territory. It's not the case. Good. It's Let's, different. I, and I see that your, your response generated lots of questions. <laughs> Mr. Miles. Uh, your Excellency, you spoke about the early days of transition in post-Soviet Union in Russia. How would you compare the outcomes of early days in Russia versus outcomes in China? early days. And then, as an example, would you tell us what do Russians today think about people like Yeltsin or Gaidar or Kozirev? 
Well, I, I'm not sure that I can compare a Russian way of development with the Chinese because it's a different part. Uh, what happened in Russia was, was so abrupt, so explosive, so disruptive, if you will. So we had to reinvent uh, ourselves, to be honest, from, almost from the scratch. In China, it's a process. And most probably Chinese are very, very wise people. They usually look in hundreds of years uh, ahead of them. They found their own way, and by uh, some measurements, a pretty successful one. They're becoming the biggest economy in the world. Uh, so it's different uh, because the social system uh, in China is certainly evaluating, but it hasn't changed the same way as it was in Russia. When it comes to uh, leaders like Gaidar or Kozarev, uh, there are various views, very diverse. You would find some uh, quote-unquote liberal thinkers suggesting that they are the ones who brought the modern economy in Russia, mostly Gaidar, because Kozarev was foreign minister, of course. Uh, at the same time, you would find even more people sometimes who said things could have been done better in more uh, productive way. Uh, and uh, with Kozarev also, there are people who are criticizing for, uh, him for many decisions that he has made when he allegedly didn't uh, protect Russian interest in full. But having worked with Andrei for a lot of period of time, especially when we were young kids uh, in the ministry, uh, he also certainly was a bright man. He is still a bright man. And what he did also very good, he preserved the diplomatic school of the Soviet Union, the traditions and the best cadres to serve Russian Federation. And we just have a few more minutes and I see a dozen questions. Uh, Larry, you help pay for lunch, you get a question. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being here with us today, Ambassador. Uh, recently there was an election in the European Union uh, for their parliament, and the European Union was quite a question in the situation in Maidan. What is the Russian attitude or view of the results of the election in the European Union? And Ambassador, if I could ask you to perhaps answer this in less than a minute or so, and we're going to try to get about two or three more questions. You are our guest, but I've got lots of guests out here. With due respect, I'm not sure I have a, a formed view to share with you on the results of the election from Russian perspective. I'm watching closely the reaction of the Europeans to what they did and how they liked it. And I understand that they understand that there has to be a lot of uh, uh, updating in the way uh, European Union operates because uh, the rise of what is labeled as anti-union sentiments in Europe, it's something that is uh, very of concern to many in, uh, in France, in Italy, and other countries. For us, the European Union as a whole, however difficult uh, partner politically, uh, sometimes, by and large, is an important interlocutor. Sometimes I think we uh, understand each other a little bit better than with our American friends. And one of the reasons is not only geographical closeness, 
but also a level of ties between Russia and EU. Not only businesses, that is significantly more developed between us than with the United States, but also culturally, historically. We share so many uh, calamities in the past history, remembrance of it together. And the United States has always lived behind the ocean, so it was a little bit different. We do not consider uh, a United States kind of outside country in Europe because you have been involved in OECE and all these instruments. But what I'm saying that living together in Europe, and Russia is Europe, because the space in Western Europe, uh, if you take the distance between the Western point of Europe and to, uh, going to Western border of Russia, it's about the same as it between Western point in the Russian border and mountains of Urals, that is geographical end of Europe. So we are half of Europe, and culturally, historically, we are so intertwined, and uh, we let's, certainly let's are very on. much interested in Liz, seeing them to continue to be a good partner for us. I'm going to try to get a few more thank, in. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador, for uh, speaking with us today and visiting with us. Uh, my quick question is, uh, you mentioned the areas of cooperation which have been successful in the past when we have cooperated. Uh, what is the status of the cooperation, say, in terrorism, uh, nonproliferation, these areas, uh, is, and what can be done so that we can move from the crisis? Thank you. That sounds like a good last question. <laughs> Especially since I have a positive answer. I think it would be less than honest to say that everything continues as if nothing happened. We all are human beings. We all operate in political environments of our two countries. Uh, so there are some um, concerns about how things will develop. But I can tell you absolutely seriously, honestly, a non-proliferation we are going to work together, and when I say we, I'm not just talking on behalf of Russia. I'm almost 100% positive that the United States will do the same, because it's a vital interest of Russia and the United States, each of us, to see to it that there is no proliferation. There are the areas, uh, terrorism uh, is certainly very important. We could have worked uh, better even in the past. Uh, hopefully we will work better in the future. But it's something that wasn't discontinued because it serves the interest of both countries. And there are a number of others. I will give you one example that is most probably, um, people have grown accustomed to it, so people simply do not remember about it. The space station. Uh, I was amazed when I was in Houston and visited with our uh, cosmonauts who are training there. And I spoke to American astronauts there. They are like one family. And uh, uh, it's amazing, even in 2008 currently, whatever happens in Russian-American uh, dialogue, whatever difficulties we experience, they work as one family. It's amazing, they have, uh, as a kind of space family, they have become immune to the crises of the day. I wish we had more of that.
Thank you so much. And thank you very thank much. You. Paul. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.